The 13th chapter of the most intriguing book in the New Testament, or maybe even the Bible, the book of Revelation. Chapter 13. All right, let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of sitting before your word. And we know that it didn't come from any man, but even the testimony within the scriptures of the scriptures is that they are God-breathed and that every word comes from heaven to instruct us on the way we ought to live our lives for blessing and in relationship with our God and Father. And Father, we ask that now you'd open the eyes of our understanding and these uh, strange visions and these uh, intense chapters. Uh, we pray that we could find the application of the truth that we could put into practice and be helped by the insights we gather to, together today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll give you kind of a little quiz uh, as we start here. You can call out, and that would be okay. Uh, I went online to find out what are the most famous uh, things about the Bible. So the most famous verse in the Bible, what do you think that is? And you would be right, John 3.16. Uh, the most famous chapter in the Bible. What do you think? First Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. It gets a lot of exposure from weddings, I think. That probably is it. Uh, close second was Genesis chapter 1. You know, everybody, you know, at least start the book there, right? The most famous Old Testament story. Well, I'm afraid not. It's the creation account, followed closely by the flood. That makes sense, doesn't it? All right. How about the most famous Old Testament character? Moses. Moses. <laughs> right, they've all seen that movie. Uh, the most famous disciple? John. I changed my mind. It was Peter first service, but there were more shout outs for John, so I figured my poll was wrong. So it's John or Peter, depending on which tape you're listening to or, yeah. All right, now for the grand finale. The most famous, think about it, the most famous number in the Bible. When I say it, you'll all agree. There are three numbers in a row, and they're all the same. Six, six, six. That is more famous than any of the previously mentioned items all put together. The entire world is interested in that one mysterious number, a number that appears in our text this morning in Revelation 13. It's kind of a riddle that the Lord gives to us and uh, to the readers of Scripture. And it's associated, of course, with the central identity of the character uh, there in the end of the world scenario, whom we call the Antichrist. Interesting, the Antichrist, that word only appears four times out of five verses in the New Testament. Uh, but that name has stuck for him. He has a title. He has about a dozen titles. 
But that one title, only mentioned four times, really stuck, and that's what we call him. There's another name for him, which the Bible uses 30 times, and that would be the beast. And as Warren Wiersbe put it, he said, you know, God had stopped thinking of this man in terms of having been created in God's image, but rather as a brute animal under the control of the evil one. And so we're going to take a look at this most intriguing character. And why? Because the Lord wants us to, or he wouldn't put a whole chapter about him in the Bible for our consideration. So the Lord really wants us to consider and to reflect upon these issues. Some people, some Christians, just would rather avoid uh, them because they're rather intense, uh, but they're there because the Lord said these are important. And Revelation's the only book that comes with a with an innate blessing. It says when you read these words and study and consider them, you will be blessed. It's the only book of the Bible that the Lord encourages us actually consider what's here for you. And so we do that. Uh, we are now, for context, and we'll dive in, uh, we are in the middle of what is called the Great Tribulation, which we have defined as the last seven years of human history as we think about human history. It would be the beginning of the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When he comes, again, it's a whole new ball game. And so we're in the middle of that. And just so you know, and I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this, though I want to, again, uh, the church has been removed from the earth before the wrath of God comes upon it in judgment of a Christ-rejecting world. And, and in, that is in keeping with God's promise, because in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 10, only one verse to support that this morning, speaking to the seven and we all agree, everyone agrees, all the commentators agree, there were way more than seven churches at the time of the writing of this prophecy. But he calls them the seven, and we all agree it's because they represent the complete picture of his church on the earth from the day it was born at Pentecost to the day he comes back for it. So the truths spoken to those seven churches are, are, are truths that are relevant to all Christians throughout time. We all agreed about that. And then Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, to one of those churches of the seven, to his whole church, he says, and by the way, I will spare you from the hour that is coming upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the planet earth. And, and that's just one scripture that says, listen, he was talking to the church. The church is going to be with him when the judgment falls. And so we're in the middle of that uh, time called the Great Tribulation. And it's during this time he's going to grab for world domination and world worship. And that triggers the end, which we call Armageddon. It's just Armageddon is the place where all the nations gather to surround Israel. And what gets me that I just read recently, Revelation 19.19 19, says that the Antichrist and the armies that follow him gather to fight against the Lord. They see him revealed from heaven, and he's coming with his holy ones, and they gather to fight him. 
Well, that's taking it to a new level there when you actually see the Lord and you think you're going to uh, overcome him. Uh, so we're going to look into this character and this evil-infused man now rallies the nations of the earth to fight against Israel and to fight against those who come to faith in Christ during that time and even the Lord Jesus Christ, as I just mentioned. And the commander-in-chief of this wicked fighting machine in the last days I call him the president of the world. He has a number, and that number is 666. But that's not all he has. He has, according to the vision we're going to look at, seven heads and ten horns. And so we're going to consider that vision. It has full uh, symbolic meaning and very intriguing facts. So some of what we're going to read is very cryptic. And some of what we read is very clear to understand. And so we're going to put our heads together with the Holy Spirit and kind of bring some insights because he wants us to consider these things. So this morning we're going to see a chapter, just eight verses, because it divides nicely. We just focus on him this morning. Believe me, that's enough to focus on for one church service. Uh, about his origins, his character, and his mission. And he is the prince who shall come. That's one of his other titles taken from Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. So here we go. John's vision of the Antichrist, a.k.a. the beast. Verses 1 through 8. And the dragon, who we just learned was Satan from the last chapter, okay? And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast. Coming up out of the sea, he had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on his horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like a lion. Now the dragon gave the beast his power, and his throne, and his great authority, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who could make war against him? And the beast was given a mouth, to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. So this would be the last three and a half years. 42 months, three and a half years, uh, that's how it's, it goes either way. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. And he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. We'll pause there and focus on this um, personality we are calling the Antichrist. Now, we get a lot of information here. Let's walk through, the, through those eight verses. And they kind of divide quite nicely, just for our understanding. First, the source of his power is revealed. 
Secondly, we can talk about his description, the, the seven heads and the ten horns. Thirdly, we're going to talk about his worshipers. And lastly, we'll talk about his mission. All right, so let's talk about the source of this guy's power, and that is identified as the dragon. Now, as I mentioned, the dragon's already been quite clearly identified last chapter. He was presented himself as a beast, but then we were told this beast is none other than the devil, the ancient serpent of old, or Satan. And so we clearly know the dragon on the seashore, we know, is a symbol of the devil. Now, verse 2 says he's given power uh, to the beast, the Antichrist. So we see that the Antichrist really doesn't have any power on his own. He's supplied power from the evil one. And, um, you know, it seems like, you remember in Matthew chapter 4, our Lord and Savior Jesus was being tempted and tested by Satan uh, in the wilderness. And one of the things Satan wanted uh, he says to him, takes him up to a high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, these have been given to me. They're mine. I can give them to whoever I want. And all I ask is that you bow down and worship me and they're yours. And our Lord and Savior quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, where it says, it is written, worship the Lord our God and him only shall we serve. And then told him, like, get out of here. And, but the devil has now found a man who says, yes. Yes, he sells his soul. And there's a little contract made. And he is going to do his dirty work. Now, you'll notice there's quite a, a connection of family resemblance because in chapter 12, the dragon, the devil, is, is shown to be a very similar beast with uh, seven heads and ten horns. And so there's slight difference with the crowns, but it's to show you that there's a family resemblance. They're going to be working together, hand in hand, um, and uh, they're to, united in their purpose, but they're distinct. They're not the same. And so we see that happening. In fact, if you're paying attention, there are three beasts in this chapter. And it goes to show you Satan's desire to counterfeit God as a trinity. So we just notice that here. First of all, the dragon is at the seashore. Now, he's not sipping a latte, taking pictures with all the little dragons. You know, he's not doing things like that. This is ominous. This is dark. He's at the sea. He's longing. He's looking. Where is his man? The man is going to rule the earth with him. Where is he? You know, the sea in Jewish thinking and in the scriptures is never painted positively. It's always a symbol for uh, instability, fear, storm, chaos, deep mystery, scariness. And, and so here he is. He's longing. He's looking. Where is he? And up from the sea of scary humanity comes and of the nations of the world. The sea always represents the nations of the earth up comes who are man, who is called the beast. And so you have the second beast. Beast number one, the devil. The beast, the Antichrist. Number two, 
And then later in the chapter, you meet somebody called the false prophet. And he's also called the beast, a beast. Now, you got three. Now, no, just think about this. Three, they're all beasts. They're slightly distinct from one another, but united in purpose and united in character and united in essence. Three, but one. Hmm. Where have we heard that before? It's ran, there it is. Oh, yeah, the Trinity. This would be the unholy Trinity. The dragon, the father, the source, Satan. The Antichrist, the son, the human being in which Satan incarnates himself. He's the incarnation. He is the man. He's filled with his father. And then the false prophet, the false prophet, the spirit, the one who points men to the son, the false son, the false Messiah through miracles, signs, and wonders what the Holy Spirit would have done. And so, yes, there it is, counterfeit. You know, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 says, the coming of the lawless one, another, if you're taking notes, another title for the Antichrist, the man of sin, or the lawless one, two titles. It says, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. Have you ever stopped to think that just as the son went around empowered by the father for three and a half years, for three and a half years, it's the same amount of time that the son of the dragon is going to go around doing his thing. You know, it's just amazing. God uh, has angels. Satan has angels. God has apostles. Satan has apostles. God has worshipped. He wants to be worshipped. God possesses willing men's hearts. Satan possesses willing men's hearts. It's just all one big, not very creative. He's an imitator. That's what he does. And um, now don't get the wrong idea. Don't go for this Hollywood uh, Damien type Antichrist guy, you know, with those dark eyes and jet black hair and sinister look and this hideous laugh, you know, and maybe a little tattoo behind his ear or somewhere, you know, in the shape of little sixes. Yeah, you know what? You know what? No. That's not going to be him. He's not going to be vaporizing little children off playground sites when nobody's looking. This isn't him speaking and foaming at the mouth and cussing and throwing his head back. Oh, no, no, no. He is Mr. Wonderful. He's going to be Mr. World Peace. He's going to be attractive, handsome, with sex appeal. He, you want to talk about charisma? This guy has all kinds of charisma. He is, the, he is the one the world will be looking at and looking for, not to mention his dazzling white perfect teeth. I mean, he's going to have it all. He's Mr. Do No Harm. Can't we all get along? He's going to solve the Middle East problem. He's going to be speaking with... Never did lies sound so wonderful and never did love sound so true until it was found to be not in accordance with true. So you get to have spirituality with no God. 
You get to have goodness with no truth, and you get to have lies, lots of them that sound so wonderful. So watch out. I mean, he's a winner, and people want to be winners, and that's going to be their downfall. And so uh, now to the the beastly image, because that's always intriguing. You know, uh, don't panic. It's not as confusing as it sounds. Uh, What do we have here? All right, well, in your text, you have a 10 crowned horns on seven headed blasphemous beast with characteristics like a leopard bear and a lion. We can do this, (laughs) right? Wow, okay. (laughs) When I ask you a question and it's like an affirmative, that would be an amen. All right, so let's try that again. Hey, we got seven heads with ten horns and ten crowns on those horns with blasphemous names on each head and uh, characteristics of a leopard and a bear and a lion. We could do this. Amen. Here we go. (laughs) All right. Observation number one, revelation for dummies, all right? Uh, For me. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) For this big dummy right up here. All right, number one, if you just take a look at that and say, what is that saying? Uh, I would say, he's bad. Amen? He's a bad guy. He's a dude you don't want to mess with, right? He'd be hard to kill, you know? You kill one of the heads and, you know, well, you got six more or whatever. You know, he, he's just a scary thing. Okay, well, why don't I just move to the, um, going through this. The slide that, has the, that explains the heads, the horns, the crowns. All right, here's what we got. In Daniel, we've already had multi-headed beasts. And Daniel, thankfully, defines some of them. So we know what generally these kinds of images stand for. So I'll just go through it quickly with you. Uh, Number one, when you see multi-headed things, the head usually stands for a country or an empire. It's pretty easy. And in this case, it's saying there are going to be seven of them all together. All right? Next one, the horns. Pretty easy. They generally stand for kings or the leader, or the presidents of these kinds of coalitions, all right? The crown, crowns on the leaders, that's easy. They have authority. They may be royal, but they have the power to lead. The blasphemous names on each head of that ugly beast, the ugly heads would symbolize nations coming together. Each having a blasphemous name would be uh, each share the same contempt for God and the things of God. So I picture a name like known to that nation, that's their thing against God, uh, idolatry, sexual immorality, uh, greed and money, um, you know, whatever it's known for. They're all, they all share a common opposition and hatred toward God and things of God. And then the leopard, bear, and lion features, well, if you just take it for what it is and you didn't know the Old Testament, you would say fierce, powerful, and deadly. But if you know the Old Testament, you will know that Daniel has a vision of four beasts. And there's a lion, a leopard, and a bear. So something about this ties us back And we'll show a picture of 
what Daniel saw, all right? Maybe you can hit the house lights. It'll help them a little bit. All right, so Daniel sees a lion, a leopard, and a bear. And he is told later who they are. So we know that the lion is the Babylonian Empire. We know that the leopard was the Greek Empire. We know that the bear was the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, we'll leave that picture up for you. And let me read Daniel's words about this fourth beast. He said, after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast. This is out of Daniel 7, by the way. Terrifying and frightening and very powerful, it had large iron teeth that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was very different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. He goes on to say things that are absolutely definitive of the Antichrist. So all experts really agree. The fourth scary beast that doesn't look anything like the others, it's like some kind of dinosaur. It's got the ten horns. There you have Antichrist to come. And the point of this beast in Revelation representing the world leader is this. The world leader and the empire that surrounds him and he does his work through will have the very worst characteristics of every previous wicked empire that ever was. And so there's going to be a little bit of the crushing bear. There's going to be a little bit of the raging, tearing teeth of the lion. And there's going to be a little bit of the, the deceptive kind of stalking of a leopard. And so all that is to say, this, is a, this beast is coming. And thank you for the picture and the lights can come back on. But here's the point of your vision. You ain't seen nothing like what's coming. It will be him but it will be his coalition as well. It will be a totalitarian government and him. It will be Hitler, Mussolini, um, Stalin, Saddam Hussein, uh, Mao, all rolled up in in the greatest the world can ever do in world leader and dictatorship. That's the meaning, in general, of that vision. Nothing like it before. A compilation of the worst that has ever been because you've got Satan himself indwelling a man and also giving life to this evil kind of empire. And so that, I mean, which is it? Is it an evil empire or is it the Antichrist? Who's the beast? It's him and it's them. I mean, when you talked about Nazi Germany, Nazi Germany, you could say it was Adolf Hitler, or you could say it was the, you know, the Nazi regime. It was kind of all wrapped up in one face and one symbol. And so we move on. So that's the general understanding of that vision. And, you know, of course, the question, of course, is, well, who are the ten nations and the seven leaders who are going to kind of come around him? Aren't we close enough to kind of make some guesses? And, and yes, the number one 
nominated region of the world by most conservative expert scholars is the European community. And there are very strong reasons they think that. And um, that's neither here nor there. Uh, like I said, we, we will be gone. And I don't think, I think this is, this is really what I think. This information is most pertinent to those who will be living in those days. Because if you're living in those days, this will all make perfect sense. It doesn't make quite sense. We get like, okay, we got it. We like, like this evil coalition 10 and 7, and they have authority, and it's going to be vicious, and we get that. But we, you can't say. You, you just can't say. It looks like. But they'll know. And I think that's the heart of the matter, is when it comes down to specifics, who is he and who are they, you know what? We don't know. We have some clues. We're supposed to be looking not to the Antichrist, but to the Christ. That's our job. We're all obsessed about him and pleasing him. Amen? Amen? But he put it there, and he said, I want you to think about it. So for a reason. Okay, let's move on now to um, we've seen who's supplying his power. And we've got a little now description of how he's going to operate there. Now to three, his, his worshipers. I mean, he's described as a beast, but it doesn't stop people from admiring him or worshiping him. So let's talk about that now. Well, Satan worship, it says that they worship the dragon and they also worship the beast. So it's kind of they're worshiping him. Uh, Satan worship is a reality. I'm, I, I'm sure it's growing every day, but uh, I remember meeting a person who worshiped the devil. Um, I did a lot of street preaching in my younger days. And uh, you'd run into these guys, they come up and they say in a scary voice, I worship the devil, <laughs> you know. And so I'm like, okay, whatever. And then uh, this guy's telling me, oh, I've got so much power. I've got, I've got power. I've got pleasure. And I said to him, I said, I'm sure you have immediate benefits from your Lord and Savior. I said, but you know what? His retirement plan stinks. <laughs> Honestly, you want to know about an IRA? Uh, check this out right here. <laughs> Let me show you how to retire in style. Yeah, so anyway, yeah, I don't get the whole thing, but, you know, apparently people uh, do. Now, let's paraphrase verses 3 through 5 and talk about really what pushes the world over the edge into adoration of this man is the mock death and resurrection, which, hmm, I wonder where he got that idea from. All right. The beast, Mr. Wonderful, uh, receives what appears to be a fatal blow. Verse 14 tells us what delivered the blow, a sword. But the fatal wound was healed with the whole world watching. He's back from the dead and everyone's astonished. I'm paraphrasing uh, three through five. Everyone is astonished. They fall into line saying, after all, who's like him? Who's like the beast? He's undefeatable. Not even death can conquer him. And so men worship, listen to this, men worship the dragon. That's the devil, right? Because he had given power to the beast and they also worship dear leader. All right, now get this. This is very interesting to me. Do they know they're worshiping the devil? <laughs> no, of course they don't. The devil's invisible. How do they know? It says, and they worship the dragon. Do you think 
Uh, Mr. Wonderful to Sing Hall, I know you think I'm so great, but let me just tell you, all glory should go to my father, the devil, and let's all worship him. Do you think that's happening? No, it's not. You see, he wants to be God. He's not telling anybody he's diabolical or that he's dragon-powered, you see. But it says right here, it says right here that the people, unbeknownst to them, they are worshiping the Antichrist, but they're also worshiping the power behind the Antichrist. And I just took that and I just ran with it in my mind. We do that today. The world does that today. Uh, the, the, the devil says, that it says of the devil, rather, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 4. In other words, when we give our hearts worship, our souls passions, our trust, to unworthy man-made idols that Satan has set up to stumble the human soul. We think we're just giving ourselves to whatever golden calf we are worshiping at the moment, but behind the golden calf is somebody who delights in steering your heart worship away from its rightful place. And past the golden calf to the one who put the altar there to stumble you in the first place. It is the devil who receives joy and delight and attention from passionate hearts that trust in other things that he himself has set up. And so there's an altar empowered by the dragon. And he says, bow, worship me. But he puts the golden calf there. So there's dragon-powered porn. Behind that is somebody going, yes, yes, thank you. Dragon-powered dollar signs. Dragon-powered pleasure and drugs and alcohol, sexual immorality. Worship at my altar. And we think, oh, we're just doing this or that spirit behind it they didn't know they didn't know the dragon they were worshiping the dragon but they were their minds were blinded they were giving allegiance to this thing but in reality you've got all kinds of civilized idols too idol of self-sufficiency oh very civilized the idol of pride the idol of unforgiveness well, we've got a we got them you know what? It's given me a whole nother take on temptation and sin. Because it's one thing for me to have a vision of something on the television that catches a man's eye. That's, that's just a problem for all of us. But it's another thing for me to think there's something behind that going, come on, come on, worship me. Not him, worship me. Oh, that makes me mad. <laughs> Doesn't it? I mean, or do you want to just, uh, you know, click, click, worship, worship him? Oh, no. I hope that unsettles you in your besetting sin when you realize you're playing right into his hand or heart. 
All right, moving on. I have no idea where I am, so you'll pray for me. Maybe I should just turn the page in faith. Oh, good. At the time of, so uh, here's my sum up of the worshipers. Do they even know they're worshiping the dragon? No. Uh, do, will the people of the Antichrist know that they're worshiping the devil? No. Will they be worshiping out of their hearts in adoration? No. It'll be more practical and political and more of a way to survive. Just like back in the day when John wrote uh, this prophecy, it was in the 90s. Emperor worship was going on. And here's how you lived your life. Uh, it was a death sentence not to worship the emperor. And here's how they did it. You'd go into every, every little town, had a little local place, a city office, where you'd go in and you'd pledge your allegiance to Caesar. And they had a little tiny fire burning with a little statue of whoever the Caesar of the day was. In this case, it was Domitian. Oh, he really, he called himself Lord and God. And so you'd offer a little pinch of incense representing your heart and your trust. And you'd throw it in the little fire to go puff in a little smoke. And you would say, as your life and your sacrifice and your trust and your love ascended into the nostrils of your Lord and Savior, Caesar, you would say, Caesar is my Lord. Christians refused. And by the hundreds of thousands, they were martyred. So no can do. And a lot of people just thought hey, all it is is it's political because they would give you a little certificate like picture of a driver's license. They'd give you a little certificate that said you can work in the, in the trades, in the unions, you can buy and sell. If not, you couldn't rent your house, you couldn't pay your bills. You know, So people would just say, hey, I'm a good Roman citizen. I like the guy, he's doing a good job. Hey, yep. I don't want, do you think he's God? No. Yeah, but you're worshiping. Anyway, and that's what it's going to be like. You know what helps them to worship? If you don't, they'll kill you. And it says that it's quite a motivator to speed up the little uh, motivation to worship him. And so by hook or by crook, by true motive or false, for survival or peer pressure, whatever it is, you take the mark. So instead of getting a certificate in the end times, you get a mark. And everybody, you know, thousands and thousands of ideas. What is that? Well, it's pretty easy. Whatever it is, it facilitates you to be tracked and to either uh, prohibit you or allow you to enter the economy. Whatever it is. And it goes here or it goes here. So they'll know where you are, who you are, your bank account, and whether you can uh, say, Mr. Wonderful is Lord. Because he goes into the temple and he proclaims himself God. And whoever refuses to worship the beast in your text today, gone. Cannot buy, cannot sell, cannot buy a cup of Starbucks coffee, let alone pay your rent. Now for me, the Starbucks coffee would say, hey, I'm out of here, no way. But uh, uh, it's just crazy, just a crazy thought there. Okay, so we're done with his worshipers. We've got one thing left to talk about. That would be his mission. And it's not pretty there. 
Uh, let's talk about it. First, it's two-pronged mission. Destroy with the mouth and then destroy with the sword. So he's going to start by creating fuel for the fire for his little war machine to take out God's people. And how do you do that first? You have to fan the flames of hatred and anger and resentment and all of these things. So your text says, first, he opens his mouth to blaspheme, and it's given three objects, and they're very interesting He starts by giving eloquent speeches and reasons why you should hate what he hates and so that you will then follow him in the plan to wipe them all out. First, you've got to hate them. First, you've got to think they're worthy of being wiped off the face of the earth. So that starts always with a lie. Now, lies are powerful. Slander, Satan's name is slander. This is what he does for a living. This is his job, right? Listen to how powerful it is. Speaking of Starbucks, I was at Starbucks in Petaluma last week. Very strange incident. I see this guy getting his coffee, and I'm getting my coffee and fixing my thing, and he's got short sleeves on, and he's got 50% on tattooed on one of his forearms. And so I couldn't see the other forearm. So I say to him, Oh, hey, 50%. And he looked at me and I said, what's the, on the other arm, it must be 50%. And then it's 50, 50, and it's 100, right? And he said, no, 50%. And he goes, Portuguese. And it's written Portuguese. And I said, so you're 50% Portuguese. What, what's the other half? And he said, Irish. And I said, well, why are you hating on the Irish? Where's the 50% to the Irish? She said, I ran out of money. <laughs> so I said, well, why did you pick Portuguese? He said, to start with. He says, oh, this one, I just like it better than the Irish. He was almost looking at me like, who are you? <laughs> no, no, but he was engaging. And then I said, that's funny. I'm 50% 52. My father's a Jew and my mother's Sicilian. And he went, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. That's okay. There's no problem. No problem. No problem. And I went, what? And I said, I know there's no problem. Uh, is there a problem with you? And he said, oh, you said Jew. And I said, yeah, my heart's pounding, and I'm thinking, what is it with you, Ryman? You can't just get your coffee and go sit down with your wife. What did you do here? And then I see another, I see another tattoo that looks like, you know, the Nazi thing. And I'm like, oh, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, uh, cream and sugar, bye-bye. <laughs> so he goes, yeah, no problem. He goes, back in the day? Because, yeah, it would be bad. It would be bad. And I said, the Jew thing? I said, I'm only 50%. <laughs> it's 50% less than you thought of a problem. <laughs> so he laughed and he says, he says, no, I was back in the day. I was, here it is, as listening to the wrong voices. As listening to the wrong voices. What voices were that? Punks. Just punks. He's hanging with punks and said, oh, Jews are all our problem. Jews are running the government. Jews, Jews, right? 
If that has the power from punks, the word of punk, junior high punks, did I say punk enough? <laughs> if it has that kind of power, can you imagine Mr. Wonderful infused by the power of the devil who deceives the world and what he's going to say? Adolf Hitler had a sea of faces and all he could say is, you don't have a job? The Jews. You got a problem with your kid? It's the Jews. You got a problem here? It's the Jews. And look what happened. That's how he starts. It's in your text. Three people he goes after with the mouth first. And he goes, number one, your text says God. Well, he's going to say he's the real one. So we got to get rid of the God of the Bible. So that book of fairy tales, okay? That's what he does with God. Number two, it says his dwelling place. But the word in the Greek means worship center, tabernacle. So he goes after inciting hatred and anger against any Christian gathering where there's Christian worship because there's strength. The Christians will be trying to gather secretly underground in homes, at schools, wherever they can find because there's strength and there's direction and there's renewal. And he knows, oh, we can't have that. So we've got to infuse hatred into the world to come against those congregations so that we can't have any of that kind of strengthening. And so what is he going to say? You know, that place is, they're so narrow-minded and intolerant, and they're the problems. They're the haters. They're bigoted. They're closed-minded. I don't know if you've heard any of that before. <laughs> and then finally, the most intriguing of all, who does he talk smack about? Number three. You're not going to believe this. Those who live in heaven. The phrasing in Greek does not mean cherubim and seraphim and God. It means the humans who live now in heaven, who used to live on earth, but escaped his reach. He slanders the church that was rescued from him. Why does he slander us who are gone? People remember us. It was only five years at the most. People might be longing. People might be homesick for mom and dad. We must make you hate them because that remembrance or sympathy for those who now live in heaven will put you on a path to want to be with them and rebel. So we must make you forget about them and remember they were the problem to begin with. And that's why I, by my wonderful power, did away with them. Don't you remember this? Don't you remember the, the, the anti-abortion and the homosexual haters? And don't you remember all the laws and the rules and, and the hypocrisy? And before they know it, they don't care what happened to us because they want to be a winner like him, not a loser like us. So now he's fueled them. They're loaded. 
and the killing machine is ready. And what does your text say? He overcomes the saints in all the earth. He gets the upper hand and he wins and millions are martyred. Now, that's a hard one to understand, but I will say this. It's yet another reason to prove that we, the church, are not there. Why? Matthew 16, 24. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the New Testament church. They are not the New Testament church. They are the tribulation saints. So they are overcome. That's kind of part of the deal. You reject the gospel under church age grace where the door was open and the phone was ringing. (laughs) And you end up having to remain and then fight out the battle there. There are consequences. Well, it's not all bad news about being overcome in the last moments there as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a place prepared for them. There's no more living in that kind of atrocity. and There's a martyr's crown waiting for them. There's the Heavenly Father. There's us. There's eternal paradise. No more crying, no more mourning, no more fear. But here's the kicker for me that goes, yeah, that makes sense, God. When he comes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, He comes with his saints, and he just used the word for them, saints, tribulation saints, all right? Now, when he comes, they're going to be with him, coming against those who martyred them. So in their martyrdom, the first shall become last, and the last shall become first. And now Jesus Christ appears with the saints, us and them who were martyred in opposition to those who took their lives. That makes sense. How's how's he going to get them up there to come back? I mean, that's kind of one commentator said it. It says it's kind of the price people paid for rejecting the gospel and having been alive and had the opportunity. Yes, you have a second chance. But it, it at a very dear cost to live in the in those kind of days. And then closing, there's just a little cryptic thing that everyone has trouble with because I didn't read it, so you might want to check it out as I read it. It says, "He who has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is going to go into captivity, into captivity, he will go." Verse ten. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, he will. With the sword, he will be killed. And then he says, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of his saints. So here, let me, let me help you with that. After we find out that the saints get brutalized and virtually lose and get martyred, uh, then we hear about the book of life that, that their names are in before the creation of the world. So he's saying, look, you're covered. Death, life, martyrdom, no martyrdom. You're covered. Before the earth was, I chose you. I sealed you. I destined you for eternal life. You're going to be okay. 
All right? So nothing strange is happening. So when you're being, and here's where your text is, when you're being hauled off to prison and you go to prison, you're going to go to prison. And if you're being lined up for execution, you're going to be executed. Because God has a God-appointed destiny for all of us. And if it means, this is what it means here, if you're reading this and you find, oh my word, and the beast conquers the saints, and you're being led off to prison and you're going to be executed, he says, if that's God's will for your life, embrace it. You're going to win in the end. Because he says, uh, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. He says, you know, if God has appointed you to honor and glorify him by the way you die and are martyred, so be it. That's what this verse is saying. But only hang in there. Don't fall apart. Your name's written in the book of life. This is all under God's control, and you're going to be duly rewarded. God has a destiny for all of us, and millions of people have had to been martyred. The word when he says witnesses, you shall be my witnesses, the word is martyr. The Lord never pulled any punches. He said, look, you're going to all be my, my martyrs. And, and, and bless his name, most of us won't be called to do that. You remember, and I'm bringing my remarks to a close now, my, uh, Peter and John were talking to the Lord. And the Lord says in John 21 uh, to Peter, Peter, let me tell you how you're going to glorify me in the last days. He said, when you were younger, you used to go wherever you wanted, dress like you dressed. But in, in the end, somebody's going to stretch out your arms and lead you to a place you really don't want to go. And then John says he said that because he was telling him the kind of death he would glorify God with. And then Peter's like, oh, I get it. And then he saw John. And he said, what about him? <laughs> and the Lord says, you know what, if I wanted John to hang around until I have the second coming, what is that to you? Your job, follow me. Follow me. And then, of course, that started a rumor that uh, John was going to stay alive until the second coming, and John had to fix that there at the end of 21 and say, it was only, he didn't say that. He just said, what if I wanted John to remain? And be that as it may, God has appointed a way for some of us to glorify him unto death. Stephen cries out. They're stoning him for speaking the truth. He cries out. He says, I, I see the Lord. The rocks are flying. He says, I see the Lord standing. Like the Lord giving him a standing ovation, you know? And, and, and they, they shut their ears and they're piling the rocks on top of him. And he says in a sweet spirit, Lord, don't hold this, this sin against them. Jesus, our Lord, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This verse is saying, Listen, I know where I put you. I know why you're there. And if you're being let off, embrace it. Go for it. Honor me. Be found faithful. That's what he's saying. He said, before the foundation of the world, you were in my book. It's going to be okay. You're going to come through this. And you're going to see me and a reward. I'm in control. 
Embrace your God-given destiny like Stephen and, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself and millions of other people because it'll be worth it. He says, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you'll come out the other side unscathed, honored with eternal life and eternal reward, eternal honor, and face to face with the Lord you love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love and encouraging us. Lord, this isn't our home. We just, it's not our home. We're not, we are not the inhabitants of the earth. We are citizens of heaven. And we pray, Father, that you'd keep that fresh in our hearts and our eyes upon you, Lord Jesus, and our, like I like to say, our nose in the book and our knees on the ground. And keep watchful. Father God, we commit ourselves to your care. In Jesus' name, amen.